0: game is over. The New York Jets are the world champions. You play to win the game. He's got it. That's a Jet touchdown. Can't wait. You're listening to the official New York Jets podcast, a Jets 360 production.
1: What's up, everybody? Ethan Greenberg and Eric Allen back in studio for the official Jets podcast. And this weekend, it's not only Jets-Colts on Sunday at MetLife Stadium. It's also an honoring of the Super Bowl III team in 1968. It's been 50 years since that team has took the field, and they're going to be basically the halftime performance. They're going to be honored at MetLife Stadium, and what better way? They're going
2: to be honored throughout the weekend, Greens. I think the organization has something set up for them throughout the weekend. I think the guys are arriving maybe late Friday, mm-hmm. maybe bringing in their families, and then Saturday morning, I believe they'll be here on a day when it's closed to the media and things like that, but I believe the Super Bowl three team will be here to take in, walk through, and maybe talk to some of the current members, the uh, 2018 Jets. Then there's some festivities Saturday afternoon. I know there's a dinner at MetLife Stadium Saturday night hosted by Jets fan himself. The Swami, Chris Berman. The That's, Swami. Yeah, you didn't know his name. I didn't name know the, the Swami. Swami. No, oh, I well, didn't you know You are a young
1: buck, man. No, no, no I, well, I know he's the Swami. I didn't know he was hosting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So then, I, I, of course, I know who the Swami okay. is. Okay.
2: So then Sunday morning, actually, I think I'm hosting a breakfast at MetLife Stadium. Okay. And then, like you mentioned before, the players will be honored at halftime. So everybody, make sure you get your beers early, maybe a second quarter early timeout, or your Pepsis, your popcorns, yeah. whatever, things like that, because we'd love to have everybody in their seats. Yeah, make do. sure to
1: go in the two-minute warning. Don't go at no, halftime. No, two-minute
2: warning, you're still going to get caught in lines, man.
1: Yeah, okay, well, sure. I,
2: everybody does a two-minute warning. you got to be before that.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I do that in the press box, too. But uh, So EA and I talked to... Bob Letter, who wrote uh, a book that essentially is about everyone except Joe Namath on the Super Bowl Well, team.
2: he's got a chapter it- about Joe in there, but as you'll soon find out, he's one of the few people he wasn't able to talk to.
1: Right, and the book is called Beyond Broadway Joe, The Super Bowl Team That Changed Football, and so Bob spoke to, what do he say, 38 of the 44 members of the team, ex- excluding Joe, and then five coaches, and there's a chapter on every player, and it If you're a Jets fan that watched that Super Bowl and you followed the team growing up, you're obviously going to be very in tune and you're going to know a lot of of the players, but there's some fascinating stories from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, but if you're a young Jets fan like myself, and I have the good fortune of understanding what the Super Bowl meant, not only from literature and, and whatnot, but my grandmother actually was at the game along with my dad on, and my uncle you're, you're, and I my don't grandfather. Think we've,
2: I, I don't think we've actually discussed this. They were at the Orange Bowl? Yeah.
1: Yeah, my, my grandma, my grandpa, my uncle, my brother were all there in 1969. Did they keep anything from that, like a ticket stub or...
2: You know, the, my grandma... program you know, ha- program programs used to be big back in the day. I, remember, I believe remember? there is
1: a program somewhere in my grandmother's house. Really? I mean, like... It, you know, not that the audience needs to know this, but my grandmother is a hoarder, so she has everything. Right. From she had a check from the nineteen fifties that we recently threw out because obviously it is expired. But like she she has a couple things, and there's a, a there's a program somewhere. I mean, we have to find it, and th- there's a photo, a Polaroid picture. Uh, and it's uh, you see Broadway Joe like getting on a bus, and my grandma's just like in the front in the front of the photo. This is in Miami. Yeah, yeah. Look at you. Yeah, Broadway Joe's How in, about a, in a okay, green jacket. So, so I will say this,
2: uh, and we didn't get into this with Bob, but uh, there was a feeling that season if the Jets could beat the Raiders, that they would beat the Baltimore Colts. They were confident that they would beat the Colts. Now the oddsmakers weren't confident. And we didn't talk to Bob about the guarantee, because it's been talked about so many times, but I was in New York City recently hosting a and a with Joe Namath, and he said that we're at the Miami Touchdown Club, and somebody in the back was saying, hey, you're going to get your butt beat, Joe, you're going to get your butt beat. And he said, no, we're not. No, we're not. I guarantee it. And that's how, that's how it all started. And then the next morning, you see...
1: A, you know, Headlines in the newspaper. Wait, so, you, so you were hosting the Q&A yeah. and, and some guy didn't to, like... No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, that happened okay. at the Miami yeah, I, Touchdown. I, I, know. I, I thought you were saying that someone tried to, like, recreate the moment. <laughs> no, <laughs> That would be something. <laughs> that, that would be funny. Maybe,
2: maybe someday that will happen. But uh, uh, that, that's all. It's not like Namath went out there and he was talking to a media member and he was like, oh, yeah, we're going to win it. But if you talk to the guys over the years, and I've had a great opportunity to do that, they were very confident heading into that game, and the thing about that game in particular, which was very interesting, is the Jets dominated on the ground and with the defense. I think that had five takeaways in all, sixteen to seven against the Baltimore Colts. But that game really changed the football landscape, and we were we are lucky to be part of an organization that um, you know has that as part of its legacy. And again. Who knows what what would have happened? Uh, people ultimately think the merger was happening, but this definitely quickened it or, or made it faster that the merger was definitely going to happen. Um, so we never know because the NFL dominated those first two Super Bowls.
1: Yeah. So a, a couple things here before we roll in this interview with Bob Letter is one, I think Bob and you and every and would be happy to know that. The Super Bowl III, is, it was actually taught in when I went to school. So I was part of, like, an American sports history class, and very much so we talked about Super Bowl III. God, you went to some yeah. advanced schooling, man. Yeah, because it was, we it, was <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> it, it, it was a real cool we class. It was an elective, but it was
2: really cool. We didn't have any sports history classes. Yeah, it was awesome. It,
1: we, we learned all about the history. Oh, it was the history of sports and television. And Super Bowl III was a big part yeah. of that. And, and just some really cool stuff there. Like, for example, I didn't know this is that, Floyd Little, an SU alum, oh, no. by
2: the way. Oh, we got to drop the 4-4 four, four in here. Yeah, okay.
1: so Floyd Little actually, right before the AFL-NFL merger, had agreed to sign with the New York Jets, and then the two leagues merged, and then there was just one singular draft. Floyd Little went to the Denver Broncos. The rest is history. The other thing is that I just want to say about Joe Namath and the Super Bowl and the guarantee is just my favorite story is that he's like out by the pool, Like, a day before the game, and reporters just, like, walked up to him and had had a conversational interview with him. Could you imagine, could you just imagine what that would be like today if a player were just hanging out by the pool the day before a game? Uh, uh, First of all, the scrutiny on social media would be through the roof. Second of all, it just would never happen.
2: No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. And, And that was the innocence of everything, because back in the day, you could go out and, there's stories of guys having beers with reporters, and you know, and, and, and there were certain things off limits. Now we live in a, in a world where your phone controls everything, so you got to be on point all the time. I think there was more freedom back in the day, and it was more of a relaxed atmosphere, like you're saying. And isn't it something if you look back to that 1965 draft? I believe Joe Namath gets selected by the St. Louis Cardinals in the NFL. And the New York Jets of the AFL.
1: Yes. Yeah, and any right? ops
2: to go to the Jets and the rest of the history. But this was a great team, Greens. Bottom line. This was a great team. And we get lost in and and that over the years that just thinking it was Broadway Joe. Because if you talk to Joe, he is the first person to talk about his running backs, whether it be Matt Snow or Emerson Boozer or offensive linemen, guys like John Schmidt is center up front. Or the receivers, Donnie Maynard, of course, and George Sauer. And then that defense, Jerry Philbin um, and, and company. So uh, the ultimate team, and uh, they had the ultimate win in maybe in sports history.
1: And, well, what a perfect segue to roll in this interview with Bob Letter because it is more than just Joe Namath, and I think that's why Bob Letter wrote this book, as you'll soon hear. He said that someone would said, oh, that's the Joe Namath Super Bowl, and he took it personally and said because this team was great in many more ways than just Joe Namath, even though he was a key component to the Jets' success. But without further ado, here's our talk with Bob Letterer. All right, now joined by the author of Beyond Broadway, Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football, Bob Letter. Bob, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me. It's a pleasure, and uh, I hope a lot of Jet fans are going to learn something uh, from our conversation today and from the book.
1: I'm sure that they will, and for fans that don't know about what the book is, can you, one, explain what it is, how long the project took for you to complete, and where you got the idea to write this book?
0: Uh, The project took three years. The book is essentially, I guess the best way to describe it is uh, the story of the Super Bowl Jets team, other than Joe Namath, although he's obviously a central character in it, and I think he still has the second largest chapter in the book. But it's the first attempt ever made to try to incorporate and tell the stories of the other 44 players um, and the five coaches and the pro personnel director, who enabled, uh, as I say it, uh, Joe Namath to live up to his Super Bowl three guarantee.
2: Bob, there's going to be a lot of young people listening today, and they don't know the enormous um, victory that was for not only the Jets but the AFL and the entire football world. And you're part three of your book is how Super Bowl 3 changed everything. How did it change everything?
0: Well, I don't want to give the whole thing away, but <laughs> let me put it, let me put it to you this way. Uh, um, the Jet players first of all had heard rumors during the 2 weeks between the AFL championship game where they beat Oakland and earned a spot in the Super Bowl uh, and the Super Bowl game itself um, that the NFL was not necessarily going to follow through and have all the AFL teams come into the NFL. In fact a couple of them, and they talk about it in the book, told me that some of the weaker AFL franchises were seriously being considered not being included. And frankly the two weakest AFL franchises at the time, and think about this gentleman, were the Boston Patriots and the Denver Broncos. How about that? So imagine Tom Brady never having played for the Patriots. Well, maybe he would have gotten to the Jets, who knows.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: But the other thing that happened is that Pete Rozelle, uh, it was well known, was looking to incorporate uh, the 10 AFL teams, or however many they were going to put in, into the NFL structure. And in other words, the Jets were going to be placed in the Giants division, the Oakland Raiders were going to be in the 49ers division, Buffalo would have been in a division with Detroit. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, after the Super Bowl game, the uh, AFL owners got their backs up and they told the NFL, uh, because this was decision making time about the merger that was still two weeks, uh, two years off from actually being completed, that they w- were insistent that the structure of the old American Football League be maintained. And so the best way to really look at this, and I really thought about this over this past weekend. Imagine today if the American Football Conference was not the American Football Conference but the American Football League and the NFC was the National Football League and they were literally separate uh, leagues still at war with each other and each year vying for the talent coming out each year imagine what Sam Darnold would have cost the Jets to try to sign away from an NFL team
1: mm-hmm. that- it's fascinating to think about when you put it that way, but I want to know is, how did you go about writing this book, and how many players did you speak to? It was, was it phone interviews? How did you get in contact with the players? And did you have a favorite interview?
0: Um, how I got in, in, in uh, touch with the players is a deep-guarded secret that I will reveal to no one. Um, um, we had a system in place that we put together here, um, that allowed me to identify where the players were, and then to connect with them uh, through different various means. I talked to 38 different people um, who were part of the 44 players, other than Joe, and the five coaches, um, and and Sonny Werblin's uh, kids, and even the the children of some of the other owners of the Jets. And Sonny Werblin had uh, really gone out of the way after the '67 season; he'd been bought out by the others. Uh, and so I was able to talk to probably 80%, 85% um, of the players. Several of them had died, uh, notably George Sauer Jr. and Jim Hudson, uh, that was actually just a couple of years before I started. But there had been others who early on had passed away. Cleve Rush, who was a superb offensive coordinator, had been the first to pass away in 1978 or 79. Um, Buddy Ryan was not doing well at the time that I started the book. But I was able to get most everybody else. And I also got the last interviews um, that people like. Uh, uh, Winston Hill ever did, Curly Johnson ever did, etc. So it was it was really a thrill for me to talk to a lot of these guys. Now, what's what's the most interesting interview, boy? That's really tough to to pick out, but I'll tell you the first one because it was very very telling um about the rest of the book. Curly Johnson was the first player um, that I elected to call, and it was just by chance. I had no specific reason for starting there. Curly lived out in Texas, and uh, his wife answered the phone. And she, I told her who I was, and my my spiel for everybody was that I'm a Jets fan since 1963, and I remember the evolution of the team from the Titans to the Jets, and even more so the evolution and the progress that the players made individually between 1963 when Sonny Werblin and Wee Bubank took over, and of course the end of the 68 and beginning of the 69 season when the Jets became champions. Um, and, and she listened to me and said, okay, she says, can you hold on a second? I said, sure. She covered the microphone on the phone. And I heard her distinctly say, hey, Curly, there's a guy on the phone that wants to talk to you about the Super Bowl. (laughs) Um, and I could hear Curly, who really couldn't communicate very well at that point. He had really been struck early on by CTE, but he laughed. She laughed even louder. She came back and she said, Curly has been waiting 48 years to tell people what happened in in his mind, the memories he has about that great season. And although nobody else exactly put it that way. Um, reading between the lines that's what v- most of the players i talked to really felt and, and the best way i can explain that is that when the book was done and everybody in the book has their own chapter and they've all seen what i've written about them um, i heard from at least a half a dozen who said they can't wait for the book to come out because it will give them something they can pass on to generations uh... from their family to show what grandpa great-grandpa great-great-grandpa I uh, did as a football player back in the
2: 1960s yeah and that's really wonderful and the Jets are going to honor more of uh, 30 of those Jets players who were there January 12 1969 down in the Orange Bowl won the Green and White beat the Baltimore Colts 16-7 um, in uh, one of the most iconic s- games in any sport ever uh, the coach of that team was Weave Bank you actually were able to dig up some player evaluations. How cool was that? And I got to imagine, Bob, when you went into this, you didn't think that, ah, well, there's a chance I get some player evaluations from WeVue
0: <laughs> And Well, never of my wildest dreams. What actually happened is that some of the Jet players, after I had interviewed them, invited me to come to New York to meet them because they said, hey, you're asking us a lot of questions. There's a bunch of us that want to look you in the face and ask you a bunch of questions. So I did travel to New York in January of 2016, and I met with guys like Jerry Philbin and Ralph Baker and Al Atkinson and Larry Grantham and Bake Turner and Cornell Gordon and, and a whole bunch of them. Um, and in and amongst the crowd, I was introduced to a gentleman named Jay Pomerantz, who lives on the island and is one of the biggest Jet season ticket holders. Um, and Jay was introduced to me, and I told him what the project was, and he said, "Hey, you got some time before you go back to Chicago this weekend?" And I said, "Sure." Followed him to his home that Sunday morning, and he told he took me into what I would best describe as a jet cave. It's filled with uniforms, helmets, shoes, all sorts of uh, playing paraphernalia uh, from that from that team. He, he's really the ultimate fan of that Super Bowl team, but more importantly, and of more interest to me. He opened up um, his shelf and showed me the Weeb Eubank estate, which essentially meant that he had playbooks and personal notes and things of that nature um, from from the end of his Colts time to the end of his Jets time. And he said, here, have fun. I think you're going to find a lot of interesting stuff. And he showed me a number of items uh, that were there, including, just as an example, uh, the uh, the hospital report on Joe Namus' knees. And one of the great things, uh, ahas, that comes out of this book is that at the end of the 68 7 season, um, the, the Jets' ownership and we were told by Dr. Nicholas and a uh, a specialist of of knees and such, that Joe probably had two to three years of full uh, capability left in him. And then there was no guessing that they could make about whether he'd even be able to suit up and play ever more. And so um, they basically said, if you're going to go for a championship, go for it soon. Well, that, that summer, as a lot of Jet historians know, in training camp, the Jets traded for Bob Talamini to really fortify their offensive line, A, and that was to protect Joe. And B, they brought in Babe Perilli, no. who became the first veteran quarterback to back up Joe Namath and be ready, really, to step in if Namath got hurt or had to leave a game or, or what for whatever reason. And that, to me, in retrospect, was a sign that they were going for it. I felt that way as a kid when I was 16 that year. But I also, in looking back now and being able to read all this information, Recognized um, that that we and and Sonny Werblin and the Jets ownership had decided, yeah, we're going for it now because we can see what the doctor reports have to say, and that's just one of the things you, um, that comes out of the book.
2: You mentioned Babe Pirelli uh, going through this process, and as time has gone on, how difficult is it when you've seen some of these guys pass recently?
0: It's been very hard for me personally because Babe, Larry Grantham. Um, In particular, were guys that I was talking to on a fairly regular basis long after I was done interviewing them. I mean, Larry Grantham has really taught me, before he died uh, last year, uh, what professional defenses are all about, and what you do and what you don't, and especially the critical importance of watching film. A lot of the other guys I still talk to you know, with, with some regularity and I count you know, a handful of them as a, really uh, among my very best friends and I hope to continue that well past this 50th anniversary.
1: Bob, you mentioned that you were 16 at the time when the Jets uh, won the Super Bowl. I just want to know, is, as growing up watching this team and rooting for this team, and what do you remember about the season, about the Super Bowl and did you have a favorite player?
0: Uh, My favorite players were Jerry Philbin and uh, Emerson Boozer. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that my my interest in those days, although we all loved Joe, you couldn't fail to love Joe. His talent was just, you know, out of this world. But the Jets had 11 players who played in the AFL All-Star Game that year. So there were 10 other guys, guys like John Elliott and Jerry Philbin and Al Atkinson, and John Schmidt and Dave Herman and Boozer himself and Don Maynard and George Sauer Jr. Um, these guys were special talents um, and so as as the years have gone by and the 50th anniversary has come to be connected uh, almost strictly with Joe Namath in fact that's what I hear here in Chicago when I tell people about the book right. they said oh you're you're writing a book about the Namath Super Bowl hmm. and in, in a way that's almost offended me, because as a Jet fan and somebody who grew up watching football and then learning about football, as this team was being put together piece by piece in 63 and 64 and 65, 66, 67, even bits and pieces that still came together in 68, um, I have really come to recognize that these guys were a tremendous outfit of, of 45 players um, who really committed themselves to, to going to win. And I don't know about the players today, but I did discover that most of these guys back then knew very little about their teammates. I mean, I'm talking about their personal lives. Obviously, they knew their wives and their kids, but beyond that, not much else. And Jerry Philbin, um, after reading his chapter, said, hey, I'd like to read a couple of the other chapters. I said, sure. Hmm. Sent it to him, and he said, wow, there is so much information here that I didn't know about my teammates and he said i can't wait to read about the rest of them and i've heard that from a number of players in fact billy joe who was at the beginning of the season the third string fullback told me a couple of weeks ago he learned things about himself in his chapter and i don't think you can give me a nicer research compliment than to point that out you
2: can't get any better than that how about broadway joe himself did he like the concept of the book Because I've been here for close to, well, this is my 18th season, and I've been around Joe quite a a bunch, and he is a humble guy. He is a guy who has that magnetic personality. I know when a a lot of people hear that name, and probably you go through this every day, they think of Broadway Joe, the fur coat, um, the the bachelors, uh, 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 the establishment that he had in New York City, the TV shows and all that other stuff, but... I I don't think people understand that this guy was a good teammate, and he also went through an evolution as a player, specifically in 1968 when he said, hey, I can't do it all by myself. I have a great running game behind me, I have a good offensive line, and I have a dominant defense.
0: Well, you know, I have to be honest with you, I have never talked to Joe Namath. Wow. (laughs) He did not talk to me for the book. Um, the players told me that, that they loved him. In fact, Al Atkinson told me that the end of his chapter had to conclude with his simple comment that always remember that we wouldn't have won without Joe Namath. Yeah. Um, the players love him. Um, I, they just, you know, they know that he was the difference maker, and we all know he was the difference maker. Everybody recognized that. Um, but he said after the game to Sal Marciano of uh, Channel Two in New York, when Sal tried to congratulate him and say to him, "Congratulations, you're the king of the hill," Joe immediately turned it around and said, "No, we're the kings mm-hmm. of the hill. We've got the team," and that was another bit of the uh, the reason that I did the book that I did. I wanted to show, and this this is the way the book is laid out, that without a great offensive line, a very good running game, and particularly running backs who could block like the devil, uh, great receivers, and a defense that in 1968 became the best in the American Football League, without all those components, and even I'll add the special teams, Mm. because they were largely um, inhabited by rookie players Who just basically played their hearts out and put their lives on the line because even in those days, the special teams were more dangerous than anything that we see today because there were less and less rules. All those things together, as I said early on in this conversation, enabled Joe to fulfill his guarantee.
2: Well, the book is Beyond Broadway, Joe, Bob Letter, uh, tremendous research, uh, uh, well written. Uh, a piece of literature for any Jets fan and I just wanted to leave today with one question. The uh, fathers and sons are going to go to the game at MetLife Stadium this weekend Sunday. It's halftime. Here come the 68 Jets onto the field. W- what do you want the, the the fathers to tell their young kids about the 68
0: team? Well, wow, great question. Uh First of all, I plan to be there, too. I'm going to find, by hook or by crook, a way to get into the ballpark. But um, the, the thing about the 68 team, as I mentioned before, is that these were guys who really played their heart out together. One of the real keys to that team winning, and I think it probably applies as well today, but Larry Grantham stressed to me that, particularly on defense, every one of the 11 players had to not only understand Um, what exactly the other 10 guys would do on every single play. So imagine whether it's a draw play uh, or it's a a sweep to either side or it's a screen or it's a long pass play. Um, The defensive tackle, John Elliott, had to know what the other guys on the defensive line, each one of them, was going to do on that play, what the linebackers were going to do. How the safeties were going to be lined up, and what the corners were prepared to do, and that sort of thing, and that is what makes a team cohesive and work. And just to give an example, you know, from the, from the present day, watching the game against Jacksonville the other day, so the the uh, thriving. Uh, uh... jacksonville offense because they could just throw over the middle as jet defensive backs would let their guy go and anticipate that somebody else was going to pick them up deeper in the secondary um, that comes from experience that comes from really watching uh... film for for endless hours and understanding what's going on but it's the cohesion that comes together and you know, going into the sixty eight season guys Um, There were only three new players that started for the Jets, so everybody else had become more and more accustomed to playing alongside the guy next to them um, in the years that had passed on, and that was one of the keys to the success of that team.
1: That is Bob Wetter, the author of Beyond Broadway. Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. Bob, thank you so much again for joining us.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate your, uh, your opportunity and your recommendation, and I hope people will take advantage uh, and read up because young or old, but particularly to the young out there who I understand may not be uh, as with it as far as this team goes, this is the legacy that we have as Jet fans. This is the greatest team in the history um, of, uh, of the New York Jet franchise. In fact, they still hold the record for for points scored in the season, mm-hmm. and I think that says quite a bit 50 years later.
2: Thanks, Bob. We'll see you Sunday.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: Tremendous stuff from Bob, getting some insight on how he went about talking to the players, how the book came to fruition. Three years in the making, I mean, the book is, let's take a look here. It's about 300-plus pages, almost 400, and there's just tons of information in this book from the beginning to the end, and the truly, like, as as we sit here recording this podcast, I'm looking in the middle. There's just, like, some photos here, and I'm looking at a photo of the 1965 signed players, and it looks like it's out of a notebook that I have on my desk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is crazy just to think about how the operation was so different in the 1960s and the 70s compared to now because this document would not only would be electronic it'd probably be locked somewhere <laughs> like oh, yeah. this, this is just like a, a piece of paper and what's so funny to me is when in the interview with bob is when he was saying that he, he came across papers from the doctors on joe namath's knees like that that's crazy that's something you, I mean. you don't just like find that anymore
2: yeah. and, and, and then uh just looking back, I was still thinking about the defense and bringing up Randy Beverly at a couple interceptions in that game. Um, yeah, but no, like you said, yeah, Bob elaborated on his relationship with Jay Pomerantz. And Pomerantz is a guy who's got a lot of judge memorabilia. Uh, so there is uh, some really neat information uh, that Pomerantz has, and he was able to share with Bob in this book. I have a good uh, name of story for you. So we're hosting the Q&A in the city, and we get done with it. And I said, thanks, Joe. And the people, there was a small uh, crowd in attendance, and they clapped. And he went over to the Super Bowl trophy because they had brought it into the city, and he kissed it. And then he came over to me, and he whispered to me, he goes, I think that's the first time I ever did it.
1: Oh, look at that. How about that, huh? Yeah, I've met Joe a couple times, and growing up, you know, you hear stories about Joe. And you see photos and you see videos and whatever. But meeting Joe in person, it, it's weird because you can see exactly why people were pulled to him as fans, as friends. And you, you said it that he had a magnetic personality. I, I mean, it's so obvious just in... The first time I met him, I think was for like two minutes at a United Way event, yep. and he's a big proponent of United Way. as a hometown hero yep. that happens every year, and I spoke, I interviewed him for like a, probably a minute or two, probably less than two minutes because he's a busy guy. And I mean, you could tell immediately that you know he's got, he still got the fashion going. He's very charismatic, and he—that was a great adjective, charismatic man. That, yeah. that guy. He's he still epitome. got it. He still can walk
2: down New York City. He's still got it. He's got a glow about him. There's just something different. And remember, he's been on the Public Eye for, what, 50-some years now? Yeah, And he is so good with people because a lot of people want to come up to him and tell him their story, tell him where they were when it happened or maybe where their dad was when it happened and things like that. And you know, or may- maybe ask him a story about Bear Bryant in Alabama, and he is so giving with his time, uh, and his smile, and that beaver falls drawl uh, uh, that he developed, and then went down to Alabama, picked up some southern twang, too. <laughs> yeah, it,
1: it, it's like a mix of Pennsylvania and Alabama. Yeah. Pennsylvania, there it is.
2: Um, Why th- but he's the man. He's still the man yeah. to this day, and this team is—you uh, know, is still still—you uh, know—they'll always be remembered. But uh, anytime you get to a 50th anniversary, it's uh, really special.
1: 50 years later, again, Super Bowl three, the team will be honored at halftime at MetLife Stadium as the Jets take on the now Indianapolis Colts. Make sure, as EA said, make sure to get your popcorn, get your Pepsi, your soda, your beer, whatever you need. Make sure to get it before the two-minute warning. And the, the Jets lines. are wearing all-whites like they did in Super Bowl D- aren't they? Ha- and as on our previous podcast, Neil Glatt, the president of the Jets, said they're rocking the gray face masks. I like it. So a, a little bit of a uniform combination, a new one. So a new one for new Jets fans, an old one for older Jets fans. Nonetheless, it should be a great day. Thanks again to Bob Letter. But that's all we have on this episode of the official Jets podcast.